Welcome to the Humanity Matters Podcast, where we discuss and reflect on faith and philosophy, nonprofit leadership, and social issues. We want to engage ideas on what it means to be a free human being in the pursuit of human flourishing. For more information, visit our website, philipfletcher.org. And now, the Humanity Matters Podcast. Thank you all for coming out. I really appreciate everybody that showed up here, and I'm very sorry for the time that it took me to show up. But um, I'm running for the United States Senate because criminal justice is one of the closest things to my heart, not only because I've worked in the prison system, but because of the powers of our government, the power that it has to take someone who is free and place them in a holding facility. We understand that people have done terrible things and they should be punished. But it should not be incentivized for our government to criminalize behavior where no one is being harmed and place people in prison in a system that is making money for our government. And I hope that our discussion today will shed light on why this is a very important issue for all Americans. And again, I just wanted to Thank everyone for coming out, and I hope you enjoy this this panel. Thank you, Ricky. I love it when a politician steps up and just takes the ball and runs with it. Um, we're we're here today with uh, some special guests uh, to have a panel discussion on the general topic of uh, criminal justice reform. And I wanted to take a moment to uh, introduce our panelists. Um, we have. Uh, on the far end, Dr. Philip Fletcher. He's the founder and executive director of the City of Hope Outreach, a 501c3 profit in, uh, nonprofit in Conway, Arkansas. Uh, he's married and a proud, of, proud dad of three children. Uh, native of Louisville, Kentucky, Dr. Fletcher received his Bachelor of Arts in Ethnic Studies from the University of California at Riverside, his Master of Arts in Theology and Apologetics from Liberty University, and a doctorate in Organizational Leadership from uh, Regent University. Uh, he served on the 20th Judicial District Criminal Detention Facilities Review Committee. Uh, he hosted a PBS television program, A Deeper Look, The Poverty Divide in Arkansas, and has been involved in uh, all, all sorts of uh, uh, homeless task force and poverty studies groups uh, associated with the uh, University of Central Arkansas. Um, next in the line, we have uh, Jeremy Spike Cohen. Uh, he's Started a web design company in 1999, retired from that three years ago to promote libertarian ideas full-time. His aim is to make people more familiar with voluntary solutions and property rights. He's the host of My Fellow Americans, the co-host of The Muddied Waters of Freedom, and the co-owner of Muddy Waters Media, a podcast platform that reaches millions. And, of course, he is the Libertarian Party's candidate for Vice President of the United States. We're here for Spike Cohen. 
And of course, last but not least, the man you've all already heard from and know and love, Ricky Darrell Harrington. He graduated from Jefferson High School, received a Bachelor of Ministry at Harding University. He served in various pastoral roles, served as a missionary in Scotland and China, and has been a university teacher and hospital consultant. Most recently, he served as chaplain and, chaplain and treatment coordinator in the Arkansas Correctional System. And, of course, he is the Libertarian candidate for United States Senate, uh, the one and only candidate opposed to Tom Cotton for that office. Ricky Harrington. I guess, uh, you know, it's a kind of a broad subject, uh, criminal justice reform. There's a lot of sub-areas that we could talk about, and I've got some questions that we can bring up. Um, but I thought maybe I'd first give everyone a chance to uh, uh, give some general comments on their views of the issue and priorities and uh, what they might do in the case of uh, Mr. Harrington and Mr. Cohen, what they might do when they're elected to office. Uh, but maybe we could start off with uh, Dr. Fletcher down there uh, to tell us uh, some general points of view on, on how you approach this broad question of criminal justice reform. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you, Vice President Candidate Spike Cohen and U.S. Senator Candidate Ricky Harrington for the opportunity to be here and speaking on this panel. Uh, 2.3 million. United States of America has more incarcerated persons than any other nation in the world. The land of the free, the home of the brave, we incarcerate 2.3 million people. Here in Arkansas, the number is about 16,000 men, women, and youth who are incarcerated. Men, women, and youth. It's not just violent crime. It's not just theft. It could be lack of paying child support. It could be because you didn't pay a speeding ticket or you had to choose between going to court and going to your job because you're only hourly. Because you didn't show up to court, a warrant was put out, you were picked up, and now you're incarcerated. 16,000 men, women, and youth here in the state of Arkansas. And then when I am blessed to have the opportunity to get out of incarceration. And then I am faced with looking for a place to stay. When I am told that to reintegrate into society, I need to get an address and a job because I'm going to need that job to pay my fines and my fees and visit my probation officer. But someone won't give me a job because of what I have to put on my application. Now I am set up in a system to where I've got to figure out how am I going to survive as a human being? How am I going to make it? How am I going to do what? Reintegrate into society. And so for some, they make a choice, and it's a poor choice, and they end back incarcerating. And then for others, they may find a way to find a place to live, on somebody's couch, or in somebody's car, or in some tent, because no one will give them the opportunity for a place to live, but they will find a way. That's the system that men, women, and children are in. These are the men, women, and children that I work with on a daily basis, and that in some cases, 
They can't find a homeless shelter to get into because they have a record. They can't find an opportunity to work. So who and what can we do to change this? And for my estimation, what it's going to require is increasing the gap between law enforcement and everyday citizens like yourself. John Stuart Mill said it this way. The only reason that a government should come in and arrest me is if I'm about to take his life or his life or his property. That the government's only reason to come in and restrain me is if I'm about to take your rights in order to benefit myself. Other than that, I should never see a law enforcement officer. But what that's also going to require is us holding one another accountable on a daily basis. Us speaking to one another in such a way that we instill in one another and our kids values that say, you know what, respect that human being. See that that human being is a free individual just like you are and support their opportunity to be free. So I'll stop right there and pass the mic. I was going to say, I'd like to thank Philip for making my speech a lot easier because he said about 85% of what I was already going to say. So that made it a lot easier. Uh, As Philip was mentioning, we have millions of people that are in prison right now. The U.S. population makes up about roughly 5% of the world population and over a quarter of the prison population. Americans are five times more likely than anyone else on this planet to be in prison. And the vast majority of them are not in prison for violating the lives or rights or properties of others. They're in there for victimless crimes, things that shouldn't even be a crime in the first place. There are many of them that are in there because they pled down to a lesser charge because they couldn't afford the cash bail. Uh, And they ended up getting another charge. And now that they have a prior, they're now in jail for good. Uh, Many of them are in there because they couldn't afford uh, a good defense attorney and because we have no, we because we have immunity for prosecutors, prosecutors can often do a lot of really terrible things to uh, put innocent people in prisons and even on death row in some cases. We have a system that. very well for uh, contractors that build prisons and make equipment for this militarized police state that is growing under us. It benefits greatly corrupt politicians who have put this system in place. It hurts the rest of us, and it most hurts the most marginalized among us. We have seen in most states that people of color and poor people are several times more likely to end up in prison for the exact same charges as as non-poor white people, even though they're... ...people for the direct harm of everyone else, all of us that are here. We have to come together. And the only way that we are going to fix this isn't by just talking about it or complaining about it or coming up with excuses about it. We have to have real 
policies. We have to end immunity, not just for police officers and, uh, and government agents, like we talk about a lot with ending qualified immunity. We need to end absolute immunity for judges and prosecutors so that when they infringe upon the lives and the rights and the property of the people and are shown to... to end this war on drugs. It has completely failed us. It has destroyed people's lives. It has decimated entire communities. It has made addiction worse because people who have addiction don't get the help they need because they are scared to tell anyone because they don't want to go to prison. We are treating addiction like a criminal problem instead of a health problem. The majority of people that are in prison are in prison because they are addicts that were feeding their addiction. And as a result of that, they ended, in prison, ended up in prison for it. And like Philip was saying, they get out, often they still have that same addiction, and now they isn't the first time and it won't be the last time until we end that we need to end civil asset forfeiture which is a program by which the government steals from you if they accuse you of a crime now keep in mind so if they accuse you of a crime not if you've been convicted of it they don't wait for that part they go ahead and take all of your property on the suspicion that you got it from ill gains or from what they consider to be ill gains and then in a total violation of your due process rights when you should be able to use your own property to pay for your defense, they instead steal it from you and use it to pay for your prosecution. And if by some miracle you end up being found not guilty or having the charges dropped, you then have to sue the government and pay money that you probably don't have to try to get your own stuff back, even though it was just proven in court that they never should have taken it from you in the first place. That's another program that needs to end. There are so many things we could talk about that need to end, but here's the bottom line. Joe and I are running on ending all of these things and taking that power and that freedom and, of course, that money that they've stolen from you and putting it back in your hands where it always belonged. Here is the crucial part of that. There is only so much we can do at the executive level. We need people like Ricky in the Senate and in con We need people like Michael in – where did Michael go? We need people like Michael in Congress. We need people at every level of power in government, at the executive and legislative branches making these changes and making them permanent because the only way we're going to end this corrupt and bloated and murderous and thieving system that we live under is to take control of it. And that starts with electing people like Ricky and others like Michael across this country, electing libertarians, electing people that recognize that we can't call ourselves the land of the free and the home of the brave until we dismantle this prison system that proves otherwise. Thank you. Ricky, you have more to add? I'd just like to take a moment and uh, talk from the perspective of what's going on in corrections. But before I do that, I'd like for someone to tell me what the 13th Amendment of our Constitution says. I, can I, heard, I heard somebody say something. Brother in the cowboy hat and a fly-looking red coat. 
It just transferred slavery into the possession of the government in the United States. Slavery is still... with grown men that I do not want to have ever again in my life. I've had to intervene in situations that I never want to have to intervene again in my life. That prison down there at Cummins, it's one of the darkest places I've ever been. And I've been to a, a lot of places in my life. Been to communist China. Corrections is supposed to do a couple of things. Number one, it's punishment for a crime. Number two, it's supposed to be a deterrent. My dad worked as a correctional sergeant for most of my childhood. And the stories that he told me set me on the path to not even want to have anything to do with prison. He told me some stories that I don't want to tell anybody else. It scared me straight. And then I had the opportunity to work in those prisons myself. It's a deterrent. Yes. None of us want to go to prison. I was glad I got a chance to leave and go home. But more importantly, we are supposed to uphold our end of the bargain and rehabilitate the men and women that have made a mistake, but they need someone to show them the path, show them the right path. In this country, the age of criminal responsibility starts at six years old in some states. Right now, some families have to deal with what they call fins. You miss too much school, now you got to go to the juvenile courts. So already we are introducing children and families that are just trying to make it to our criminal justice system. And once you get caught up in the system, it is hard to get out. It is hard to overcome those hurdles that our government has put in place. And there's something that I'd like to share with everyone here. Even if our government doesn't do anything about it, there's something that we can do. There's something that we can do today about it. And I'm big, of course, being a former chaplain, I'm big on volunteering. And what the men and women in our prison system need the most is you. They need you. They need the knowledge that you have, the resources that you have, and the wisdom that you have to help them walk that straight, narrow path.
There's a program in the Arkansas Department of Corrections called Think Legacy. It's at just about all the prisons in this state. And the number one thing that is needed is people to come in, volunteer their time, invest in the lives of those men and women who are about to get out. They are about six to 18 months away from being released. They don't know what the future is going to hold for them. But we need volunteers. And that's something that you can do right now. Find your, call up the Arkansas Department of Corrections, the central office in Pine Bluff, and ask them, how can I be a volunteer? The one thing that we are going to have to overcome as libertarians is that stigma that we don't care about people. It's all about us. And I'm telling you right now, the way to overcome that is for us to get out, get to work, and make a difference in people's lives. So go out there, volunteer. And so that's the, that's the back end of the problem. But the way to deal with it on the front end is to volunteer in our schools. If we can reach the lives of our young people... Let them know that there is someone that cares for them. They won't get involved in gangs. They won't get involved in the life that is so wretched whenever you live in that low-income spectrum. It's a hard life. Nobody's living the high life. But we can volunteer, Boys and Girls Club, Go to the schools and see if they need any volunteers. Is there any at-risk children that you might be able to help? That's how we bring down that incarceration rate. I'm telling you, it is much easier to build up a young mind than to put together the pieces of a broken man. This, this is what I'm all about. I'm, a, I'm an action-type person. And I believe this is the way forward for us in showing people who we are and making a difference in others' lives. Thank you. Well, thank you to uh, all three panelists for uh, really bringing up a number of topics that we can uh, further explore here. Uh, I, I think I, what I'd like to do is bring up a couple of the points that were raised already in the opening discussions and uh, focus in a little bit more on them. And I'll, I'll direct the questions uh, to the panelists, but of course, uh, I hope all three will, will pitch in and weigh in on, uh, on the topics. But uh, one thing that, uh, Jeremy, you said, or Spike, you, that you said uh, um, uh, was about uh, immunity for uh, police officers and other law enforcement officials. And, and we, we've heard this uh, this end quali qualified immunity as a policy prescription. Uh, perhaps you could tell us a little bit more d in detail about uh, what it, what that would mean and uh, and uh, how that was would be a solution to some of the problems. Absolutely. So first of all, let's talk about what qualified immunity is. Uh, we had a law or have a law called the Civil Rights Act of 1871, and what it says is that when a government official, uh, particularly a police officer officer or another agent of government infringes on your rights or harms you in any way, they can be held liable. They can be sued and be held liable for 
uh, the damage that they've caused. Now, in the 1960s, suddenly the Supreme Court uh, began to create a legal doctrine, and it, it took a few different court decisions, uh, but they created a legal doctrine that they essentially created out of thin air. Uh, it is essentially legislation that they created called qualified immunity. And without getting into the decades of jurisprudence that are involved in this, qualified immunity is basically the do legal doctrine that police officers and other government officials cannot be held accountable for the bad actions that they do if they themselves, the officer being accused or the agent being accused, thinks that what they did was reasonable. Now, imagine if you could walk into court and say, Your Honor, I know that I've been accused of murder, but I think what I did was perfectly reasonable. And the judge says, Oh, okay, well, then I'll throw the charges out. That's essentially qualified immunity. More to the point of why qualified immunity has helped bring us here. Let's look at the case of George Floyd. Derek Chauvin, the officer who murdered George Floyd. Before he did that, he had 17 other complaints against him, including other wrongful death complaints. He may have murdered other people. We may probably never know. And when the Minneapolis Police Department looked at Derek Chauvin, they made the same cost-benefit analysis that police departments and government agencies around this country make whenever they encounter the bad apples in their bunch. They realized that this was a terrible officer, that he more than likely needed to go, but if they tried to get rid of him, it would cost a fortune fighting the police unions. More than likely, they would not be able to get rid of him. And thanks to qualified immunity, it's not costing them anything. He can't be sued. They can't be sued. So they figure they'll leave him on. He'll eventually murder someone. Then they can get rid of him. That is why policing is becoming increasingly unaccountable in this country. That is why there is a growing rift between the public and the police who are supposed to serve it. Because we are incentivizing bad policing by not holding them accountable. And we are punishing and disincentivizing good policing because the good cops know that when they try to hold their fellow officers accountable, nothing's going to come with, from it, and they'll more than likely end up getting edged out and, and, and removed from office. That's why we talk about often how when Derek Chauvin uh, was slowly killing George Floyd, the other officers just stood there. They knew if they did anything, nothing would happen as a result of it other than possibly them getting let go or just being demoted or, or you know, being uh, kind of um, – uh, you know, treated poorly within the ranks. When you end qualified immunity, it turns it all around. Now, when police departments and government agencies see these abusive officers, they have to get rid of them. If for no other reason, then they don't want to get sued out of existence. The police unions will work with them to help root these people out so that they don't get sued out of existence, and their fellow officers who also don't want to be sued as co-defendants will actively work to stop this kind of stuff from happening when it's happening. It turns out that when any of us are held accountable for our actions, just the knowledge that we can be held accountable serves as a great deterrence from ever doing it in the first place. Now, again, we could spend, we could do an entire panel on qualified immunity, but that's the long and short on why qualified immunity needs to go. And there are many things that can happen at the executive level, but the reality is, again, and it's why I'm here, we need legislators to change this because the courts have already made it clear that this is their doctrine. And until it changes, at the legislative level. We will happily sign off on it in the White House, but until it changes at the legislative level, it's not going to happen, at least not permanently. And that's why we need people like Ricky in the Senate. Thank you. Dr. Fletcher, do you have anything to add on that? Yeah, just, just to add, uh, Spike brought up what happened with George Floyd, but then also we look at what happened with uh, Breonna Taylor as well. And so uh, with it as it stands with qualified immunity, 
the city agreed to pay her family $12 million, the city of Louisville. But that cost is not incurred on those cops um, who conducted uh, the raid on that apartment. That cost is incurred on the taxpayers of the city of Louisville. And so if I were to hit you, like in a car, I absorb that cost, yep. right? I have to pay that through my insurance or out of my pocket, right? In this case, with law enforcement, that penalty is passed to us. We are, the city of citizens of Louisville specifically, in regards to Brianna Taylor, they are incurring the cost of $12 million. Those citizens weren't there. My parents live in Louisville. My sister lives in Louisville. They didn't conduct the raid, but they're paying for it, that $12 million being passed on. Now, I understand you know, the grand jury and the report, but still, her death is not being considered now. It was a shooting into another apartment. So, so still, those actions of those law enforcement officers are not still being considered. And so I agree with uh, Spike that with qualified immunity, that has to be done away with. So just like a doctor, if a doctor was to do something wrong, they have malpractice. They have to incur that cost. So should any other person that has an interaction with you that takes away your rights, your property, or in the case of Breonna Taylor, your life. And so that's kind of the, the implications of, of qualified immunity that has to be addressed. Ricky, anything to add? I'd like to add just a little something. Working at the Cummins unit, there's one thing that we as staff members did not tolerate. We did not tolerate dirty staff. And dirty staff is someone that engages in drug trade in the prisons. They work with the gangs inside of the prisons. They do all kinds of things that put everyone's life at risk. They put staff's life at risk. They put other inmates' life at risk whenever you bring drugs inside the prison. And I, I understand the perspective that law enforcement officers have. At the end of the day, for them, it's about survival. They want to know that the other officer that's right there beside them is going to have their back whenever things go down. And in having that type of mentality, it breeds corruption. Because if I got your back, I got your back all the time, no matter what happens. And sometimes people turn blind eye to things that they shouldn't turn blind eye because they're law enforcement officers. And we're at this position now to where we need this legislation to remove qualified immunity. But the people in Washington are just kicking the can down the road. They took a knee at the Capitol Hill wearing some African-American clothing. Well, not African-American, but clothing from, from African uh, countries. To me, that was just absolutely offensive because the right thing to do would be to pass that legislation. But you took a knee for performance art. Yeah. And it's, it's not about hating police officers. What it's simply about is that if you have been placed in a position of authority, you do the right thing and you wield the authority.
authority that you have with justice, with fairness, and consistency. And until we get our the culture changed in our police departments, there's not going to be a change. And the way that you can force that is at the local level because we know we've already seen what they're going to do. They're going to act. And what I mean by act, like an actor. So at the local level, get some like-minded citizens. Talk to your alderman, your mayor. Start some citizen police advisory committees. Start it right now. Just do it right now. I know we can't because we're all right here. But you understand what I mean by do it right now. Don't let the sun go down on some work that you can do today. I know tomorrow's Monday. Call some folks up tomorrow. See what you can do. See how you can start laying the groundwork for what is necessary yesterday, today. So start reaching out. Go on a ride along. Get to know your police officers that are in your community. Because the goal of everything is for us to work together, not to demonize one another. Because I, I can understand the pain of law enforcement officers. I can understand that. But it does not give them the right to kill innocent people. It does not give them the right to walk away scot-free when you know what you did is wrong. It doesn't. And right now, that simple plea is falling on deaf ears. So we have to take action. And this is just something to add to that because you're absolutely correct. This isn't about demonizing individual people or even groups of people. This is about looking at the system that allows this to happen. There is nothing uniquely good or bad about the people who choose to be police officers. If you were to snap your fingers and every single police officer was removed from the force and replaced with random people from the phone book, and I'm dating myself referencing phone books. If you were just to add random people from your Facebook group, yeah, from Facebook, from your Facebook, or from TikTok, you've got you to go even younger than that now. If you were just to have random people, any of us, become the new police department, but with the same systems in place, inevitably it would lead to the same outcomes. When you give people power, when you give them an ability to have a level of power over everyone else, and there's no accountability... It might take a while, but without fail, it would end up regressing back to what we have now. This is not about individual police officers. This isn't even about police officers as a group. This is about a system that allows people to have tr tremendous power to wield with basically no accountability and very, very little oversight. It is about changing a system and adapting to how human nature is adapting to it. It is about decentralizing power. It is about holding people in power accountable. Again, not just police officers, not just CPS workers, not just government officials, also prosecutors, also judges, also politicians. No person in a land that claims to have the consent of the governed, no person in a government that claims to be of, by, and for the people should be able to have immunity from the consequences of their actions. That's basically what we tell children, that when you do something wrong, that you're held accountable. And when you do something good, that you are rewarded for that. But then they watch people in power who do bad things every day and are, as a matter of course, as a result of how the system is set up, allowed to do it with impunity. That absolutely needs to end across the board.
Well, thank you all of you on that uh, rather technical question on the, the, the subject at hand. I, I'd like to take a step back and look at kind of the, the more social context of criminal justice. And, and Dr. Fletcher, perhaps you can weigh in on this. I know much, much of your work has been on uh, poverty, the uh, causes, consequences, effects. And uh, I, I wondered if you had any thoughts on kind of how the, uh, uh, the, the uh, general income inequality, poverty, lack of opportunity uh, interacts in our society to foster this uh, general problem. Poor people uh, are persons who are uh, considered, categorized as, as being poor are not looking to conduct crimes. They're not. They are uh, the vast majority that I work with, um, and I works pretty much across the state. These are men and women who are seeking to work, want a better opportunity for their children, um, in many cases want to move out of one residential situation into a better one. And so what I communicate to people is that the men and women who are in those economic situations are no different than any of us. I'll, I want to move into a better situation, you know. I want what's best for my kids. The issue is the laws that are in place. And so I talked earlier about increasing the distance between law enforcement interactions and civilians. And so, for instance, a law on the books in the Arkansas you know, state constitution is, you know, if you got a brake light out, you can get a fine for that. All right? Men and women who are seeking to go to an hourly job, the majority of them, who need to be at work on time, and who have a brake light out. When they pass a law enforcement officer, that gap is now closed. And so now that man or woman, instead of going to work, has to now be late for work and possibly lose his or her job, but then also now has to deal with having a ticket, then going to court to address that fine. Most cars have three brake lights, left, right, one in the middle. Two are still working. What is, why? Why, why does that necessitate law enforcement interactions? There's stress, there's tension, when you're trying to figure out how am I going to put food on the table. There's stress, there's tension. When I got to figure out, do I feed my child now or do I feed my child later, knowing that more than likely they'll get a meal at school. But imagine that tension being exacerbated between a boyfriend and a girlfriend. They're living together. They got kids together. And that yelling necessitates someone else calling the police, the police coming out. The police run a name. Oh, you've got a warrant. Oh, you've got this. We are taking you in. Or in some cases, let's look at some other things, the condition of your house. We may need to call 
CPS. One thing on top of another that started with a, an argument based off of some tension because at the heart of the matter, I'm trying to figure out how is it that I can provide for my family. These are the things that are going on that are not talked about when that individual is going to court. These are the things that are going on with this individual when they're then told, okay, well, you can't pay the fine all at once. I'll tell you what, you can set up a payment plan, but then also the state is actually going to incur another fee on top of that payment plan. So now, oh, I got to pay the ticket. I may have lost my job. And if I don't pay this, then I, what? I could sp spend, what, a week in jail or I could spend weekends in jail, but my job may not be able to give me that accommodation. These are the things that men and women face in our state that's already struggling economically with high taxes. These are the things that men and women face who are considered poor in our state, and they're making these decisions every day. I define poverty as this, is the is the inability to, to make a meaningful choice to affect your situation. Their choices are reduced. And so if I make a choice and it's not the right one, and then I found out, what, that's against the law? And now I'm going to get fined for that? These are the things that men and women are facing on a daily basis. And so then it looks statistically, well, look at all these poor people who are always getting arrested. Well, because you got all these laws managing behavior. you got all of these laws being in people's lives on a daily basis. So, well, heck, yeah, I'm going to probably break a law. I promise you I broke a law coming up here. Well, I know I did. Everyone right? here probably yes. broke a law coming up here. So those are my thoughts. Yeah. Ricky, you have anything to add to I, I think the only, I mean, again, I'd like to thank you for saying 85% of what I wanted to say, if not more. Um, I think the only thing I can add is that we often, and I, I say this as someone who is a recovering conservative, and, uh, and there may be some here as well, that when we hear about poverty, uh, we often in the past would think of things like, well, why don't these folks just build themselves up economically? Why don't they pull themselves up by their bootstraps and climb their way up the ladder? Well, what we often forget, because we could afford it, is that the bootstrap license is $50,000. And the ladders have either had the first several rungs at the bottom removed so that no one can climb out of that safety net, or the ladder's been removed altogether. Um, I've done a lot of door knocking tours in housing projects, and I spoke with the poorest people in this country. These are people that owned almost nothing. They were living in, I don't even have a respectful way to describe the conditions that they were living under. Substandard is, it's not sufficient to describe how poor the housing, the quality of the housing, the quality of the conditions they were living in, and it was what they had to live in. And when I would meet with them, I went there mostly to talk about criminal justice, and it turns out they wanted to talk about occupational licensing, because almost every single person that I met with had a, what they called a side hustle, a business that they couldn't grow. I'm, I'm about to get up again, I hated talking about this. They couldn't grow it into something they could actually live off of and thrive off of. I met so many people that should, by all rights, be millionaires, okay? These are people that were doing everything from 
uh, food service to catering to uh, DJing events to uh, 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 to mowing lawns and doing landscaping, braiding hair, doing aesthetic work, anything that you can think of, any kind of service that you can think of. And these were folks that were doing it. They do, did a great job at it. They were well recommended, but they had to keep it very careful because what they were doing was illegal. Why? Because they couldn't afford the tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in the cost of complying with the licensing and the zoning laws that didn't allow them to do some of these businesses in their own homes and all the other things, the other barriers to entry that they can't afford. And so they keep it small. I've been in business for 20 years, over 20 years. The most important thing is to market. Anyone in here who has a successful business knows the most important thing, market, market, market. Always be telling everyone on earth what it is that you're doing and how good you are at it. They can't do that. They have to do the opposite. They have to tell their friends, listen, I'll do it for you, and I'll do it for this person and this person, but don't go around telling everyone because I don't want to get in trouble because here's what can happen. We were talking about civil asset forfeiture. You know how that's used very often? The police showing up and saying, what do you got all this money for? Looks like you're probably doing something illegal. We're going to take that from you, and you can either let us take it or you can fight it in court if you have the money that we just took from you to pay for it. They just lose their money. So they keep it small. They never grow to a point of actually being able to build something. So they're always behind the eight ball. They're always in poverty. If you simply get rid of those absurd barriers and burdens that do nothing to serve any legitimate purpose other than to give the government another opportunity to skim from the top of businesses, many of these people would be millionaires. Many more of them would just be able to provide for their families. They'd be able to climb up the ladder when we just put them back. These people don't want to live in a substandard safety net. They want to be able to climb out. And they want to be able to help those around them who can't climb out for themselves. All we have to do is just let them. Well, well, here's a topic that uh, we haven't heard talked about yet today. And uh, I, I guess I'll pitch this in Ricky's direction because I've heard him speak on the subject in the past. The... Uh, the death penalty has come up as a, a controversial issue here in Arkansas with uh, executions resuming. And uh, I know that you've had some direct uh, experience with that process, and, and perhaps you could share your thoughts on, on that uh, broad issue. Yes, uh, working at the Cummins unit, it is where the death house is. Death row is at the Varner unit. And it's, they're right beside one another. So inmates in Arkansas are housed, male inmates, they're housed at the Varner unit. And the day of or a few days before, they're transported to Cummins. And that, uh, anybody can imagine what that experience was uh, for a staff member. Um, and I know that the big question is, should a free society, a society that is based on liberty, equality, justice for all, should that country have a death penalty? And I like to share this experience with people whenever we discuss this because I'm caught in the middle. And it's kind of been something that I've dealt with for a, a large portion of my life, being caught in the middle of two extremely different ideas and situations. So as, as I've said before, whenever 
the state of Arkansas attempted to execute eight inmates in 11 days. Myself and three other chaplains were there to provide service to staff, their families, inmates, their families. And at night, I was tasked with being available to the families of the victims. And it was extremely bizarre to have to go from those extremes from night to day. And I've said before, right now the ACLU is trying to get DNA evidence. Lindell Lee, he was Lindell Lee, he was one of the inmates that was executed April of 2017. And if if he, the DNA evidence shows that he's exonerated, I, I oppose the death penalty because we should not be executing innocent people. And I hope you indulge me for a second uh, to tell you a story. I spent about 30 minutes on the phone with a, an inmate's mother. It was, a, it was a very difficult situation with their family health-wise and, and everything. She, uh, the lady was always checking on her son, and she believed that the only reason he was incarcerated on a drug charge was because his sister was brutally murdered. And he got hooked on drugs, and it got him caught up in the system. So I spent working with him. He talked to me at length about why he was in prison. And she told me about the time the man that killed her daughter was executed. And she said that he wrote her a letter and said, I know that I've been forgiven by God for what I've done. And whenever they execute me, I go up to heaven, I'm going to sit right beside your daughter. That does not sound like someone who is remorseful for what they have done. So it's a very sticky situation. It is. It's very difficult. But we should not ever, under any circumstance, allow the state to execute innocent people. Uh, any other additions? I just have to tell the story of Nathaniel Woods. Um, this is in nearby Alabama, and I forgive me. This isn't. We don't neighbor Alabama here, but it's nearby, correct? It's just right across the Mississippi. Yeah. Okay. Geography is. I'm getting better at it, traveling the entire country at once. But uh, I, I, I sometimes forget. But in Alabama earlier this year, a man named Nathaniel Woods was executed uh, for a murder that he was found guilty of. Actually, a triple murder that he was found guilty of killing three officers um, back in the early 2000s, except he didn't kill them, and that was never disputed, and no one ever even claimed that he killed them, and in fact, all of the witnesses said that Nate didn't kill them. The reason that they had him executed was because they said he was an accomplice to the murder of three officers, even though the shooter of those three officers said flat out that Nate had nothing to do with it. The surviving officer of the four who, wasn't, who, who didn't die said that Nate didn't do it and had nothing to do with it. 
but they wanted to kill someone. And Nate was a very poor black man who had a history of addiction issues. So they killed him. Let's be very clear on something. The only evidence they ever presented in Nate's murder trial was the fact that earlier that day he had yelled and sworn at those officers. That was literally the only evidence that was ever presented. I invite you to go look this up after this to go Google Nathaniel Woods uh, and he was uh, executed earlier this year. No one even claimed that he did it and they provided no evidence that he had anything to do with it and every single witness said he had nothing to do with it and the prosecution who incidentally enjoys immunity did not allow any of those people to speak at trial they spoke afterwards saying that they said so that that was their testimony and that they weren't allowed to be able to give that testimony now unfortunately nate had a public defender who was probably overwhelmed with an insane caseload and wasn't able to give him the defense that he needed. So he's dead now. He was executed earlier this year. There is no one who was even claiming at the end that he needed to be executed. They simply did it because essentially he was expendable. This is what happens when you give the government, the power to decide whether or not you live or die. When we give government too much power over our lives, they often use it in harmful and abusive and inequitable ways. Not because they're uh, uh, uniquely bad people, but because that's the reality of the power. The power use power against the powerless. And when we give them the power to decide whether or not we live or die, they're often going to use it against people who are totally powerless to stop them. If for no other reason than the death I call it the murder of Nate Woods. We need to end the death penalty. I totally understand the desire to rid us of people that we know committed murders, people that we know you know, killed lots of people, victimized lots of people. I understand that. I would submit to you that the biggest potential mass murderer that we can stop in this is our own government, and we stop them ending the death penalty. Well, I think uh, our time is coming to an end soon, so I'd like to just uh, pitch out one more general question. Um, I, you know, when it really comes down to it, what we're talking about is really a overrepresentation of our U.S. population in the in the prison system, in the in the correctional system. And uh, I guess so. What are the major policies that we could implement that would bring that number down? I mean, we we have uh, you know eliminating victimless crime. Perhaps there are punishment alternatives to prison. Uh, Perhaps there are more deeper social issues that we could address. Um, maybe I'll just open it up and let you talk about what uh, uh, general steps would move us in the direction of uh, uh, lowering our incarcerated population. The biggest mental health facility in Arkansas, anybody can guess what that is, it's our prisons. Our prisons are the biggest mental health facility. And there are a lot of people that are incarcerated or in our jails right now that are there because maybe they were walking around the neighborhood howling at the moon and uh, scared everybody. We do not have facilities in this state to actually treat people who are in mental health crises. We just call the cops, pick them up, they stay in jail, 
sometimes for a long time. We need to have adequate mental health treatment for individuals in the state. Another thing I'd like to, to say is 10% of Arkansas's male prison population are veterans. And I'd just like to talk to you straightforward about some of the stories that I've heard. Vietnam veterans, some of the tunnel rats being trained to go and kill for your country, go kill the enemy. How does someone turn that switch off? How does someone remove that training from their brain, from their behavior? And I do not think that our veteran administration does a good job at providing mental health treatment for our veterans. Uh, I would I would say to everybody, let me speak to my entrepreneur, business owner types. Look for an opportunity to hire somebody who's been released from incarceration. Yep, yep, yep. Whatever systems that you have in place, however you need to vet somebody like any other employee. Set aside one position to provide somebody an opportunity to be mentally productive, productive with their hands, but then also contribute to themselves as well as your business and, by extension, the customers that you serve. You're giving that individual purpose again, an opportunity to improve not only their life but also be a part of something. I understand you got to go whatever processes you have to go through, but look for that opportunity. Larger than that, speaking to what uh, Ricky was speaking about with mental health facilities, find common men and women who have a common interest. Form some type of group where you could harness your resources together to help and provide an opportunity again in terms of mentoring, job development, just education with men, women, and children. Use the resources that you've got. Use the freedom that you have, again, to benefit somebody else, but it also will benefit you. I think somebody talked about how libertarians get the, the knock of not caring, right? By, I don't know, you put libertarian whatever, X, Y, Z, in the group, but that's your opportunity to demonstrate that, hey, we're going to really invest at the very local level how we're going to improve one another and live in this civil society. And then the third thing is, and it's been mentioned, especially at the local level, keep your governor, your state legislator, state senators, your mayor, your county judge, all of them, city council, hold them accountable. If there's some laws on the books that just make no sense, where you know that it's trying to pump money out of you, put pressure on them to repeal those ordinances or those laws. Put the pressure on them because they take enough from us already. It's time for us to take back what rightfully belongs to us.
Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, they've covered pretty much everything there, and I, I think we've talked a lot about this. You end the war on victimless crimes, which immediately removes most of the people that are in the prison system federally, uh, state, and locally. Uh, you look at the core reasons that people are uh, being overpoliced in the first place and address those in, in criminal justice reform, and also things like occupational licensing reform, zoning reform, things that the war on entrepreneurialism for the poor that, uh, that they are suffering under, and those types of things. Uh, I think the only other two things that haven't really been mentioned are two, or, or not mentioned very much, are uh, two very big uh, reasons why there is a demand to have so many people in prison in the first place. And surprise, surprise, they both come from government. The first one is, and we, we reference this, is the fact that slavery, chattel slavery, is still alive and well in this country. It just was taken out of the private sector and handed exclusively to government, and all they have to do is convince, uh, you know, convince uh, a, a jury uh, or convince you to plead guilty to committing a crime. Um, the way that we deal with that uh, and in fact, in many states, I don't know if Arkansas is one of them, but in many states, there's a minimum quota of the number of you, the residents of that state, that have to be in prison at any given time because they have contracts with for-profit prison slave labor contractors who make so much money that they're actually traded on the stock market tens of billions of dollars a year that they make and they have these contracts with the states and the states have to make sure that they are arresting and imprisoning enough of you to be able to keep those contracts so first of all those contracts are easily a violation of the constitution and need to be treated as such but more importantly we look need to look at the the, the demand in the first place why is it that prisons are allowed to subject their prison laborers to conditions that we wouldn't allow anyone else to. That needs to end. Whatever conditions are required to treat laborers and workers in any other field need to be the same in prisons. That alone will end that nonsense because they won't be able to make money if they actually have to pay them what they're worth for the work that they're doing. The other thing is that a lot of rural communities are very happy. In fact, they lobby to have big prisons built in their areas. The reason is because the census lets them count those prisoners on their census. It helps them get more representation. It helps them get more money from the government. It gets more apportionment from the government, even though in some cases, nine out of every 10 people in some small rural areas are in prison. They can't vote. They aren't being, represent, being represented. We talk about taxation without representation, and our prisons are a perfect example of that. And if we ended that practice and made it where either you don't get to count prisoners towards your census numbers, or if you do, you got to let them vote. One of those is going to deal with that problem as well. When you get rid of the demand for treating people like cattle and herding them for your own purposes, when you get rid of the ability to use that and to get rid of that demand, a lot of it's going to wither on the vine, and then it will make more and more sense even to them to move from this punishment model and towards the restorative justice model of actually having people learn from the, the, the consequences of their bad actions so that they can thrive instead of being put in a cage and having their lives ruined as a result of it. And I think that's pretty much it. And again, and I just want to end by saying it is absolutely crucial that Ricky Harrington get elected. It is absolutely crucial that people with a mind towards freeing the people from cages and records and poverty and everything else that's holding them back, holding us back, getting them at the legislative level. It's great that so many here support Joe and I. It's great that so many here support our run for the White House. But 
when we get elected, there's only so much we can do. We need Ricky. We need others that are running. We need Michael. We need people that are running across this country, especially in the legislature, to be able to make the changes at the, at the law level that we can make. And finally, this is what Philip was saying. Go work with your local affiliates to draft changes to laws and draft new laws that are doing the things that we're talking about and take them to your city council. Take them to your state legislatures. Take them to your, uh, to your mayor's office. Take them to your governor's mansion. Take them to people so that you can say, this is what we demand. Work with other interest groups that may not even be libertarian. It's okay to work with normies sometimes. Work with other groups of people that have a common goal as you to help push these things forward. We don't have to wait for Joe and I to get into the White House. We can do it with Ricky in Congress, in the Senate. We can do it with Mike in Congress. We can do it with people across the country. And we can do it with you taking it to the local level. In Louisville, Kentucky, after Breonna Taylor was murdered, they passed a law making uh, no-knock raids illegal. That will never happen again there as a result of that. Let's make change whenever we can, however we can. And let's do our best to set America free in our times. And that starts with voting for Ricky Harrington. Thank you. All right, I'd like to thank all our panelists today for participating in this uh, really wonderful discussion, uh, very thought-provoking. Uh, let's hear it one more time for Dr. Philip Fletcher, uh, Jeremy Spike Cohen, and uh, Ricky Dale Harrington, Jr. Um, I guess at this point I could turn the festivities back over to the uh, Washington County Libertarian Party organizers, or I think on, next on the agenda as we've set aside some time to uh, hear some thoughts uh, in general uh, from Spike on the presidential race, and uh, perhaps we could ask him to just take the podium, and uh, we'll move on from here. Before sure. The rain moves in here. Absolutely. I would be happy to do so. Springdale, Arkansas, thank you so much for coming out. I want to thank the Libertarian Party of Arkansas. I'd love to thank the Libertarian Party of Washington County. Was I nailed it the first time. Washington County for helping put this together and of course I'd like to thank all of you for coming up. Give, give yourselves a round of applause, especially because this weather's cold, man. I, wow. <laughs> I'm not from here. Uh, if you see me shivering, it's because I'm definitely not from here. Folks, who is ready to take the power back? Who is ready to end this crony system that is victimizing us for the benefit of billionaires who put their favorite politicians in office? Who here is ready to build a future that is not just freer, but also safer and happier and healthier for ourselves and our loved ones and future generations? Who is ready for nothing short of a revolution in our times? Who is ready to take the power back? <laughs> Folks, that's what Joe and I are running for. That is what Ricky is running for. That's what Michael is running for. That is what libertarians are running for across this country because we have seen, we know, just as you do, that the American people do best when they are the most free. We do the best when we are not being robbed, when we are not being subjugated, when we are not being ordered around. We do the best when the power and the freedom and the money that the Republicans and Democrats have stolen from us to benefit themselves and the billionaires who put them in office, when we take that power and that freedom and that money back and put it back in your hands where it always damn well belonged, that's why, I'm sorry, 
where it always gosh darn well, apologize, I get worked up, where it always good and well belonged, that's what we are running for. That's what Ricky's running for. Ricky's a chaplain, I'm sorry. Uh, That is what we are running for. That's what libertarians are running for. That is why we are voting for Joe Jorgensen. That is why we are voting for Ricky Harrington. Folks, we've been talking about criminal justice here, and that is an incredibly important issue, but it's one of many, many issues that we are facing in this country, and they all feed into each other. Nothing happens in a vacuum, and all of them are symptoms of the system of control that Republicrats have created, and they need to be dismantled. Who here is sick and tired of watching their loved ones, their neighbors, their family members, maybe even yourself, swear an oath? to protect and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, only to be sent overseas to fight and kill and potentially die by those domestic enemies for the benefit of military contractors and central bankers and foreign dictators. Who is sick of watching that happen? And who is sick of watching the veterans of those foreign wars if they're fortunate enough not to come home in a flag-draped casket, often coming home with PTSD, traumatic brain injuries, and other chronic health issues, and being subjected to the worst form of health care in this country, the Veterans Administration. We are sick and tired of watching the cost of living, everything from housing to health care, higher education, and everything in between, spiraling out of control because of the Federal Reserve and other disastrous Republicrat monetary and economic policies. Who here is sick and tired of watching entire industries fleeing, not just here in Arkansas, but across the country, and either going overseas or just going out of business? Because Republicrats and their cronies figured out that they could become even richer if they made it increasingly unaffordable to do business in America, to make things in America, and to hire Americans. Who here is sick and tired of watching an increasingly militarized police state destroying people's lives, decimating entire communities because of this failed war on drugs and other victimless crimes? Who here is sick and tired of watching, as we discussed today, watching members of the government harming our loved ones, maybe even us, and not being held accountable when they do it. And who here is sick and tired of watching that same militarized police state tell you what weapons you should be able to own to protect yourselves and your loved ones and your communities while they go and buy whatever military-grade equipment they want and stick you with the bill for it? Folks, who here is sick and tired of a government that presumes the authority to tell you whether or not you're essential, whether or not you should be able to work, whether or not you should be able to provide for your loved ones and feed your families, whether or not you should be able to go and visit your loved ones, be able to go to your house of worship, be able to get a cancer screening, be able to get treatment for depression or addiction or any other health issue? Who here is sick and tired of being told to stay inside and given $1,200 of your own money months ago? while they take trillions of dollars from you to give for universal basic income for billionaires, the people who put them in office, to make sure that their bottom line wasn't affected even remotely because they were too big to fail, so you had to be robbed even if it destroyed you financially. Who here is sick and tired of living in the worst recession of our lives while stock prices are at and above all-time highs? Who here is sick of this system? Who here is ready 
to take the power back. And folks, let's be very clear. The outcomes that we are facing right now due to these bad policies that they put in place are not unintended consequences that we couldn't possibly know were going to happen. We have been saying that they would happen. The Libertarian Party, since we were founded in 1971, has been saying that these policies would lead to these outcomes, and they did it anyway because they want you to be in a bad situation. They want you to be desperate. They want you to be anxious. They want you not to know whether or not you're going to be able to pay your rent or your mortgage. They want you not to know where your next paycheck is going to come from or whether or not your retirement is secure. They want you to be scared. They want you to be resentful and angry. They want you to be at each other's throats. They want you to be hopeless. And they want to break your spirit. Because if your spirit can be broken, and if you can be made hopeless, then it's that much easier to convince you that all you need to do is give them the rest of your power. All you need to do is let them take the rest of your money. All you need to do is let them take total control of every single aspect of your life. Then you'll be okay. Then you'll be safe. Then you won't have a single thing to worry about. Well, folks, we know that the last people that we can trust to get us out of this mess are the very people who put us in it in the first place. We know that Tom Cotton is not going to get you out of this mess. We know that Donald Trump or Joe Biden aren't going to get you out of this mess. We know, I wish I knew the name of your congressman or I'd mentioned him too, but we know he's not going to, he or she is not going to help you get out. What's that? We know that Womack's not going to help you get out of this mess. That's why we need Michael. That's why we need Ricky. That is why we need Joe Jorgensen. Folks, I'm trying. <laughs> trying to warm myself up. Folks, let's talk for a moment about. How do I want to bring this up? Let's talk for a moment about how scared the Republicans are in this state. Let's talk about the fact that in a deep red state, Ricky's opponent wouldn't show up for a debate. And that might, you might have said, well, why would he do that? That's ridiculous. Ricky's gaining in the polls. He's got to show up for the debate. He's going to lose this thing. Then we saw why. We saw Ricky in action. We saw why Tom Cotton wanted to be nowhere near this man. Because if the American people, if the people of Arkansas, if Arkansans, is that correct? Arkansans? If Arkansans saw Ricky and Tom Cotton next to each other, they would have seen what a no-brainer it was. He left for the same reason. He refused to go for the same reason that Joe Jorgensen was excluded from the debate between Trump and Biden. Because when libertarian ideas are put up against Republican ideas, it's a no-brainer. The American people know not only will they be voting libertarian, that they'll probably never vote Republican or Democrat ever again. And that is why it is crucial to get this man elected to the Senate. That is why it is crucial to get Michael elected to Congress. Because when they are there in the halls of power, the only ones there making any actual sense, the only ones there 
saying what we all know to be true, that the people in power created this mess and that we have to get rid of them to stop it, it'll be the beginning of the end of their system, and that's why we have to do it. That is why it is crucial. Folks, I probably don't have to convince you to vote for Ricky Harrington. What I'm asking you to do is everything else that you can do to make sure that he wins. Whatever donations you're able to make, whatever volunteering you're able to do, however much you're able to reach out to your loved ones and your associates and colleagues, both in person, online, and in every other way, to, to tell them the story about this man, this loving father, this former prison chaplain who has ministered to some of the most hopeless and marginalized among us and is bringing that same message of hope that he used there to us here in Arkansas and across the country, that it is crucial to get him into the Senate, not just for his words, not just for his amazing demeanor, not just for his selflessness and his good character, but for the fact that he understands that we all do best when we are most free. That is why it is absolutely crucial to do everything that we can to get this man elected to the Senate. That is why it is crucial for us to do every single thing that we can to get Michael elected to Congress. And that is why I ask you while you are here, if you have not already done so, to join the Libertarian Party of Arkansas, to join the Washington County Libertarian Party. And if you don't live in Arkansas or in Washington County, to find out where your state and local affiliates are. And if there isn't a local affiliate in your area, start one because your state affiliate will help you with that. Do everything that you can, because we are fighting for nothing less than our freedom at a time when our opponents want nothing more than total control of your life. Let's be very, very clear. They are not happy with the amount of control they have right now. They are not happy with how much the cost of living is spiraling out of control right now. They are not happy with how many trillions of dollars they have directly robbed from you and future generations that aren't even alive right now to hand to the billionaire cronies that bought and paid for them to be in office. They are not happy with the number of you that are in prison or on probation or parole. They will not be satisfied until they have total control. And the only bulwark that is fighting against that is the Libertarian Party. The only viable option in the Senate is Ricky Harrington in this state. And so I ask you to do everything you can to help get this man elected. I hope to have your support in the White House too, but honestly, I'm here to talk about our best hope in the Senate, and that man is Ricky Harrington. And I ask you to support him. Now let's go win this thing. And with that, I introduce to you a man who needs no introduction, so I'm going to keep it short. An incredible, generous, selfless, kind, I can't come up with enough adjectives to describe this man other than to say, I cannot think of anyone better suited to be the first libertarian senator in the U.S. Senate. I introduce to you Mr. Ricky Dale Harrington. I am ready for a movement of the people. I am ready. And I want to tell you why I'm ready for a movement of the people. 
And I'm going to tell you why it is a movement of the people. Because you have a darling of the Republican Party, a four-way race to begin with, dwindled down to a head-to-head -head race. That is something I cannot take credit for. We have raised over $85,000. That is something I cannot take credit for. It is a movement of the people. And the people have said, they don't like Tom Cotton. The people have said, we want someone to represent us, not someone that's looking for their own interests, someone that's looking to move up the political ladder and fulfill their own desires for power. The people are fed up. The people do not want an authoritarian as their senator. I'm sure you've heard me say it before. Liberty and authoritarianism cannot coexist in a free society. Right now, this race, on your ballot, Liberty and authoritarianism are what's at stake this election. We've got one full week before we shock the world. Either way it goes, we're going to shock the world. We're going to prove to the people of this nation that despite his desire for moving up the ladder with his eye on 2024 trying to become president that despite all of that we are going to show that he is not worthy of that office someone that says no quarter should be given to American citizens is not worthy of that office. Someone that says by proxy, by proxy, I don't care how you want to lawyer it up, that man said that slavery was a necessary evil. By proxy, no one, no moral or ethical person should ever say that evil is ever necessary. a man that has maligned the LGBTQ community on numerous occasions, spoke and spread misogyny. That's who we, we do not need anyone representing us in the United States Senate that is willing to go out on a limb and say those type of things. No matter what, you are guaranteed by the Constitution to see your day in court. And my opponent has said that, hey, you don't get to see it in court. We're going to kill you right on the spot. If we disagree with you, rioting and looting is not a good thing. It is not. It is bad. But even those people that commit those crimes still have constitutional rights. 
they still have a right to a fair trial. They still have a right to counsel. Whenever we start sacrificing our principles for the sake of power, we become what we hate. Our country is moving closer and closer toward fascism. Right now, this last week, November 3rd, this country is going to see a movement of the people. Whenever Arkansas elects the first libertarian senator in the history of this nation. And I won't be able to do it without your support. This last week, anybody that doesn't know who Ricky Dale Harrington Jr. is, let them know. I'm not all talk. I put my money where my mouth is. I'm not in this for myself. I'm in this for the people. Because I know what it looks like. I've been in those countries. I know what it looks like when authoritarianism continues to expand. And we have to stand against it at every moment, everywhere it beaks its head up. We have to stand against authoritarianism. We have to do it. We're at the last stretch, and we are going to do it. And I'm so grateful to the people. I'll do everything in my power to not let you down. Thank you all for coming out. Thank you for joining us at the Humanity Matters Podcast. For more information, visit our website, philipfletcher.org. Like us on YouTube. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Remember to be loved, be kind, be generous. And if we remember to live in hope, we can do the impossible.